the series that we we uh, are doing called Who Needs God? Who Needs God? So wanted to give you just a little bit of review here. Uh, in part one, we covered Atheism 2.0, if you remember that. I don't know if, if you were all here for that, but this is a series that you'll want to, to review because there's a lot, a lot of content in it. Um, so in Atheism 2.0, we talked a little bit about the nuns. I don't know if any of you are nuns, maybe you're secret nuns and you're, you're sort of everybody thinks you may not be a nun, but you could be a nun in thought, I don't know. And I don't mean a nun as in an N-U-N, I mean a nun as in an N-O-N-E, no religious affiliation, thank you very much. Been there, done that, not interested anymore. And so we talked about that a little bit in Atheism 2.0 and what the real um, consequences are in terms of the way you think uh, if you're going to truly follow atheism. And uh, people like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens have really helped us this way and helped us think logically about what atheism really is. Uh, did you know I uh, the... The, the nuns category has grown 250% in the U.S. since the mid-90s. I was just reading an article yesterday on CNN that was, you know, stunned looking at this research. Uh, now the category of nuns in the U.S. has just slightly overtaken the evangelical population and the Roman Catholic population. So just over 23% of, uh, of Americans identify themselves as nuns. And again, not N-U-N, but N-O-N-E. Uh, and people are all surprised and shocked um, you know, at this research. They've been asking people the same questions for four and a half decades, and they see this huge increase in, in these religious nuns. There's no other religious view uh, that competes with it at all in the United States right now. It's just spiking like this. Um, in Canada, it's even higher, I would think. And in Quebec, I mean, the amount of people who would classify themselves as nuns, I think, would probably be even higher. You know, an atheist can be a nun. Uh, an agnostic could be a nun. It just, I have no religious affiliation. Don't ask me any more questions about it. I'm not interested in your church. I'm not interested in God. I just have distanced myself from all of that, and that's a nun. So in particular, organized religion is detestable uh, to nuns. So uh, anyway, we looked at that in part one, and then in part two, we talked about the, the gods of the No Testament, those gods that aren't real, that sometimes we, we have left them behind and, you know, forsaken them, or maybe some of us, we still believe in them. Remember, we talked about, uh, what was it, um, on-demand God. You know, you press a little button and you get what you want from God. Uh, we talked about uh, life in a bubble God. You know, you, God puts you in a little protective bubble. Nothing bad's ever going to happen to you. Boyfriend, girlfriend God. So, you know, I always feel God's presence. Ooh, isn't that nice? Uh, guilt God. You always feel guilty. That must mean you're godly. The more guilt you feel, then that mean, means you're really, really godly. So always feel guilty, and that means you're getting closer to God. Uh, don't think. Don't ask questions, God. Never think, never ask, and never, never doubt. And, and you can't believe in science 
and, and believe in the Bible at the same time. These two are contradictory or so we think. These are all gods that you will not find in reality and certainly gods that you will not find uh, in the Bible, but some of us believe them still, um, and some of us have let them go. And then last week, we did a, a longer message with some heavy content. It was almost one hour, and, you, and nobody fell asleep. I don't think. Maybe one person did. But I usually take that as a compliment when people sleep when I teach, because it at least means that I've calmed them down. You know, they may have had a really rough week. And so if I see them like totally out in the corner, then I kind of take it as a compliment. You know, there's a story in the book of Acts like that, eh? There's a guy who fell asleep when Paul preached. You know what happened to him? He died. Yeah, he fell out the window and died. So there's a window here. We should open it. No. So, so that, that's a story in the book of Acts. And Paul, Paul was in panic. He went on so long. That, that this guy, it was some sort of house church, I take it. He was sitting in a window, and he literally just dropped over. He was asleep, exhausted, listening to Paul preach. Imagine falling asleep when Paul preached, and he fell down, and, and I take it a few stories, and he, he had no life in him, and Paul prayed for him, and he got up. Interesting story. But anyway, I don't think that'll happen uh, today. But we, well, we, we talked about the Bible last week, and... Okay, so this whole thing of the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says, and the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. But really, why do you believe the Bible? Why do you believe Christianity? Do you believe because you have faith, or do you believe because of another reason? Again, when you, when you answer the question, why do you believe the Bible, or why do you believe Christianity, and you answer it with, because I have faith, what you have done in, in, a, in a philosophical sense is you have just, you've just made a circular argument. And any atheist or person who is a nun or whatever, they will look at you and they will smile and they'll say, yep, that's a typical response because it is. The typical response from Christians when you ask them, why do you believe what you believe is because I have faith. That's a circular argument and that, that, that will do nothing to persuade a nun or a non-church or, or, or non-Christian person because all you're saying is that you have, you have something that they'll never have. Uh, you have faith. They want reason, and, you, and we turn around and we give them faith. And what we saw uh, last week is that if you asked the, the, the early, early first century Christians, the people who you see in the book of Acts, why did they believe? They would say, because we saw Jesus rise from the dead. We, we, there's a resurrection that took place. This is why we believe the things that we believe, because this, the tomb was empty, because he was dead. He was put in a tomb, and we saw him alive, and the tomb was empty. And this is what they would say, uh, because we, we, we believe uh, because of the resurrection. We do not believe because we have faith. You, you, you become a Christian through faith, but you don't become a Christian because of faith. Faith doesn't create Christianity, okay? You have a, you have a person who, 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 was, who was completely dead, and he was put in a tomb, and that tomb was empty, and that person was alive. This is the foundation of the Christian faith. And we believe that Jesus is who he says he is because of the resurrection. We don't believe because we have faith, um, any of you see the new Star Wars trailer, Episode Nine? 
Oh, come on. There's only one kid tells the truth in church? Come on. This thing's going to make $2 billion. Did you not watch the trailer like 10 times? What's wrong with you? None of you watched the trailer for episode nine of Star Wars. Okay. Uh, go on the internet and put the... In, in the Star Wars series, that's what you will see. You will see belief can create reality. That's how powerful belief is in Star Wars. In, in Christianity, it doesn't work like that. You have, a, you have a resurrection that creates and inspires faith. But faith doesn't create the resurrection. Do you, do you see the difference? No resurrection, you, you have nothing. So uh, my wife and daughter are, are downtown at Palais des Congrès where they've been for, goodness gracious, 12 hours at least yesterday. There'll be another 10 hours today. She's on a competitive dance team. She's got six routines that they're doing over there. There's, there's hundreds of routines. There's dozens and dozens of studios. There's, there's, there's kids in school, dance schools, who practice 30-plus hours a week. It's really, really super talented uh, kids that we're watching and adults. So anyway, the name of the competition is called the View Dance Challenge and emblazoned on all of their paraphernalia and on their logo is three little phrases. Um, so see it, believe it, achieve it. Everywhere you look, that's their, that's their whole thing. See it, believe it, achieve it. And I just, you know, watching 150 dance routines yesterday, you know, and more that I'll watch today, you know, all the dance dads, they all look like me. They all look tired, toasted, roasted, you know, it's like, oh, another routine. As long as it's not hip hop music, it's fine. I can handle all kinds of music, just not hip hop, please. Any hip hop fans, just bear with me. So any Louisiana hip hop fan, so, so see it. Believe it, achieve it. It's interesting in athletics, you know, because it's like a sport. In athletics, that, that's actually not bad, you know, because when you, when you look at Christianity, well, they saw it. They saw this resurrection. And even those who didn't see it became convinced that it, that it happened. And then faith grew. And then they became followers of Jesus. In athletics, well, you know, you, you, you see the routine, the dance routine, or the whatever sport you want to execute, you see it in your head, and then you actually believe that you can actually do that, and you, you and, and then you, you start training, and you start, and then you actually achieve your goal. See it, believe it, achieve it. Mm. So again, we believe because of something, not. And that something isn't, isn't faith. It's grounded in, in, uh, in fact, in reality. So if you get this far, if you get as far as saying, okay, I can, I can accept the resurrection of Jesus. If you've gone that far, and that's huge. If you have that, you have everything. If you've gone that far, there's a whole host of implications behind belief in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, a whole host of them. It might well mean, for instance, that what Jesus says about God could be true. I mean, doesn't that sound reasonable? If you predict your own death and resurrection and you, and you achieve it, it's probably, probably the rest of what you said has some merit, yes? I mean, I could predict my own death, no problem. 
you could predict your own death, no problem. Hey, I could even try and predict, you know, how I'm, how I'm going to die. Maybe I'll get it right. Maybe I'll get it wrong. But I'll be right on the death part, right? But I won't be right on the resurrection part. I won't be. But if I were right about that, or you were right about that, well, everybody else would probably say, well, hmm, what else did the person say? Because that's pretty remarkable. It doesn't happen, right? So, so we can reasonably say, all right, we, we can look at what Jesus said about other things and maybe learn something. What then did Jesus believe about God? So if life in a bubble God and on-demand God and guilt God and boyfriend, girlfriend God and don't think, don't ask God and anti-science God, if those gods are not real, then what God is real? And what God did Jesus talk about as being real? What were the things that he said about God that we can perhaps learn from even in our society filled with nuns? And we'll just do three of them today. Um, and look at some of the implications of these things, all right? So number one, and this is probably not new to many of you, but you're going to look at it in a different way today. Number one, God is spirit. God is spirit. So you know the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well? You remember that story? We, I taught on that story for several weeks uh, last year when we were back at the theater, I think it was. And, you know, Jesus has this conversation, it's a taboo conversation with a woman who he's not supposed to be talking to, uh, a Samaritan woman, and there's a whole history as to why there was a rift between the, Jew, the Jewish people and the Samaritan people, where that all came from, and we learned about all of that. But Jesus is having a conversation with this woman, and she's actually in a bit of a debate with him about the subject of worship. Because the Samaritans, they had set up their own temple on, on Mount Gerizim. They had actually altered the Pentateuch, or what we call the, um, uh, the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. They had actually altered it. They had their own, we call it the Samaritan Pentateuch, and they, they, had, they had altered all the passages as to where the temple is supposed to be built, and they put it in Mount Gerizim in Samaria. So they had their own worship system, their own temple, and they said, you know, you, you Jews, you worship in Jerusalem, but you got it wrong. We worship over here in Mount Gerizim, and she's in a debate with Jesus, and Jesus starts to expose parts of her moral life, which she probably didn't expect at all, and she enters into this debate with him as to where, you know, what, where's the worship supposed to happen, and Jesus drops this statement in, in John chapter 4, and he says, a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. God is spirit, he says. And the true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. It's not about the place. It's about the essence of God. And the essence of God is spirit. This temple in Jerusalem implication is not as important as everybody thinks it is. And 40 years later, it was gone. No more temple doesn't mean no more God. Jesus is saying the essence of God is spirit. He's not material. He's non-physical. So this is really important for us today. You say, why? Of what significance is it uh, uh, to me? Well, uh, if you, all you know is like the material world. And even some of what you can't see, sound waves and, 
you know, there's Wi-Fi waves floating around here today and Bluetooth waves and all kinds of waves. We don't have the, the tech in the room to actually see those waves, all the waves coming from your cell phones and all of that. Um, it, but we know the physical world. And again, when we looked at atheism 2.0, that's, that's the, the, the consequence of atheism. The implication is all there is is the material world and you, know, you have time, space, matter, and you have chemistry, physics, biology, and all these things, but you don't have anything metaphysical. You don't have anything immaterial. You don't have anything supernatural. There's no soul. You can make an argument there's no free will. You can make an argument there's no value. This is kind of the consequences of it. But when we talk about God being spirit, this means that when we, when we look at the world around us, for instance, look at the, the number one view as to how all of this got here. What's the number one view that you'll learn in school as to how this got here? What's it called? TV show named after it. There, you know the TV show, the Big Bang Theory, right? And so that's the view. That's the most popular view in cosmology. All your kids are learning it. All your grandkids are learning it. You learned it. You know, you had this, this explosion, this singularity 14 and a half billion years ago, and something physical came from nowhere, from nothing. Nobody can tell you where or how or why or even when is an inappropriate question because there was no time back then. So it all exploded and it all came from essentially immaterial, from nothing, from, you could say, spirit. Well, what we do and what the Bible does is say that, yeah, in the beginning, God created you say, well, you believe in the Big Bang Theory, Pastor? No, I don't, I don't, I didn't say that. I'm actually a young earth creationist, which is the total, total radical other end of the spectrum, okay? I'm one of the crazy people who believe that the universe or the, certainly the, 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 the earth is like 10,000 years old and uh, there was a worldwide flood and God did it in six 24-hour days. I'm one of those people, okay? But the, those people are crazy people. <laughs> because we're crazy because there's all kinds of things you have to do to science to try and make that work. You, you want to change the speed of light? That, that has to happen if for that to happen, okay? There's all kinds of gymnastics you have to do to even try and adhere to such a crazy idea. But let's take two spectrums. You've got the, you've got the, the Big Bang on one side and you've got the 24-hour young earth creationist on the other side. Do you know what both of them agree on? That something came from nothing. Something came from, it came from the immaterial. Somehow the immaterial produced the material. And wherever you find yourself on that spectrum, and some of you, you think it's impossible to be a Christian and believe in the Big Bang Theory and even believe in Darwin's uh, view and naturalistic evolution and all that stuff. I, I need, just need to tell you that that is not so. There are many very well-respected uh, Christian people in the world who adhere to all kinds of different views on that spectrum. If you want to put evolution on one side and you want to put young earth creationism on the other side, there's all kinds of people who believe in all kinds of things all in between. I don't know if any of you ever heard of the name Francis Collins before who worked on the Human Genome Project, rather brilliant fellow, and he's way over on this side. 
and is a, is a born-again believer. His testimony is powerful. He's written a book on the subject, and he's way over on this side. Uh, but Collins would say, he would say, the material did come from the immaterial. And he would say, that immaterial is God. And what does Jesus say? God is spirit. He is immaterial. He's not stuff. You can't house him. You can't uh, put a little idol that, you, that, you, that represents him. This is why that was so offensive to the Jewish people, this idea of taking the immaterial and making a little idol that you could see and pray down to in physical wood, stone. This was, this was like blasphemy to them. This is why, because God is immaterial. God is spirit. He, is not, he, he doesn't live in a house somewhere, even though they built a temple for him. The temple's gone. So he's immaterial. His essence is spirit. You can't touch him. You can't knock on him. You can't do that. He's immaterial. He is spirit. He is supernatural. Number two, what Jesus said, and by the way, you're so shy. I don't know why you guys are so shy. Text me a question, please. Like, Maybe I'm blocking my own phone number. That's why. Or raise your hand and do something. Because I, I, I'm convinced that most people, most Christian people, church people have so many questions, especially when we move into the Easter season. And they're, they're, I don't know, they're afraid to ask or whatever. There's no bad questions about any of this at all. At least ask. I put my number on the screen in case you say, I don't want anybody to know or to hear. Fine, just text it to me and we'll, and we'll answer it because there's only one that came in that way. Okay, you're so shy, so shy. You know what one person asked me today? Brilliant question. They asked me today before the service. Uh, it, it, they're, they're dealing with, uh, for a school thing, the subject of the humanity of Jesus. And the person asked me a question uh, uh, about Jesus. Does he have to be God incarnate to be the Messiah or something along those lines? That's a very, very, very good question. Um, and a hard question to answer. So, you know, whatever, whatever, just please, please, please let me know and we, and we can deal with it because I, I don't like it when people have unanswered questions about these things. So number two that Jesus said, and we learned this when we talked about the Lord's Prayer, God is Father. So Jesus said, when you pray, pray this way, our who is in heaven, right? Our Father. Now, this, this is a striking thing. The, the people may not have been too stunned when Jesus talked about God being spirit. Maybe him implying that there would be no temple one day would be, I raise their eyebrows. But the idea of praying to God as our father, no one in the, in the entire record of the, of the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament today, no one ever prays that way. No one ever calls out to God and says, our father or my father, which is the term that Jesus used when Jesus prayed. No one did that. Although you did see back then references to God being father and so on. You can see these, these things in the Old Testament. No one addresses God that way. And no one teaches people to address God as our father. I mean, that would have been like, excuse me, you cannot, you cannot call God that way. God is, 
God is too big for that. He's too almighty for that. He's too omnipotent for that. You can't call God our father. Well, Jesus did. And he told the people to pray that way, our father. This is personal. Some people get hooked up in a debate about whether God is male or female there. They hear the our father, our father, he, 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 and they say, ugh, this is, this is the 21st century. God should be a woman. Why do we talk about God as being a man? Okay, the, the point of that back there would have been God is personal. That's the way that they would have understood it. They wouldn't have had these arguments about whether God is female or male, like God has no gender. The idea here is he is personal. This is what they would have got from that idea. Wow, I can actually personally communicate with God and somehow relate with God as father using that term. Wow, that's very personal. That's very relational. And even as you see God revealed in the Bible, you see Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you see the Holy Spirit, you see them communicating with one another, even in the pages of the Bible. That's relational. That's why you and I are relational, because God is relational, and he creates us in his image, okay? So God is Father, God is Spirit, and finally, God is, and this this you know already, but maybe not the implications of it. God is love. Uh, Jesus talked about, um, it, it, or it's probably Jesus. There's a debate as to whether Jesus said this or John said this, but for God so blank the world. For God so loved the world. I wasn't saying a bad word there, okay? So for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. For God so loved the world. Did I ever tell you the joke about the, the customs uh, border agent? I'm sure I've told you this joke. So I go to the, to the border to cross into the U.S. This was a few years ago. And I was driving a different car at the time. It had an odd uh, dent in the hood. And so the, the, the customs agent started asking me all kinds of questions. Is this your car? What are you supposed to say? No, it's not my car. <laughs> so I said, yes, it's my car. And he says, well, what, what's wrong with the car? And I told him what was wrong with the car, how the dent got in the hood. And he said, he looked at me, he said, what do you do for a job? So I told him, well, I'm a minister. And he said, really, a minister? You work for the government? or No, I said, no, like I'm a pastor. Really, you're a pastor? So the guy looks at me, the true story, and he says, what's John 3.16 say? <laughs> you never heard this joke? I didn't tell you this joke? So I said, I started, so oh, for God so loved the world that he gave us, and he cut me off. He said, okay, go ahead. He didn't even want me to finish the, finish the thing, right? Everybody knows that passage. You know, you go to a sporting event, you can see people with John 3.16. You know, they put it on their, on their eyelids. They put it on their forehead, John 3.16, John 3.16. For God so loved the world. He loved the world. God is love. Uh, John also, when he's writing much later in life, he says, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God. Now, of course, we define love differently than John defines it and the way Jesus defined it. He's talking about a type of love that is sacrificial and giving and that looks after the needs of someone else before it looks after its own needs. And this kind of love, there's a Greek word that describes it that way. It's not talking about, oh, you know, I just feel in love and all this kind of stuff. Okay, this is not the concept. God is, he's love. He's not hate. He, he is love. 
Now, this, this has a big, big implications for us because we think, well, I, I, like, the, I like the loving God. Uh, what I don't like is the unloving God. Uh, and, you know, some people, they, they draw a distinction. They say, I like Jesus as God. I like the way he talks about God as being a God of love and a God of forgiveness. And I like that. And, and that's, that's really good. But did you know that, that love implies justice also? How can you have love or even define love if you don't have unlove? How would you know what love is if you don't have unlove? If you don't have hate and know what hate is, how are you going to know what love is? And so love has a component to it that we don't often address. It's the component of justice. And we want, I guess we want God to be just, just not against us. <laughs> against some other people, yeah, but not against us. But if God loves, then God is also it implies that God is also just. He's also fair. He also has a moral compass that he, that he uses. All of you do this, especially if you're parents. You're not just love, 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 and you never discipline your kid. If you never discipline your kid, you don't love your kid. You have to have discipline. You have to have justice. You have to have fairness, and you know that. You can't give the child everything that they want all the time in the name of love. You know, well, I want this, I want this. Oh, I love you, so I'll just give it to you. Oh, I want this, I want this. Oh, I love you, so I'll just give it to you. I'll never say no to you. I'll never say you're wrong. I'll never punish you. I'll never discipline you. I'll never stop you because I love you. Does that make sense to you as a parent, those of you who are parents in this room? Uh-uh. Some of you, how many of you have more than one child? Raise your hand. How many of you have more than two children? Raise your hand. How many of you have more than, th more than three children? Raise your hand. How many children do you have? Three. Okay, how many more than three? How many four? Four. Four. How many, how many five? There's a verse in the Bible about the quiver. You know the quiver verse? His quiver is full. There's supposed to be five arrows, they say, right? So four kids. Am I right or am I wrong? You have to have justice along with your love, yes? Or else you, you would be in the, in the mental hospital right now trying to figure out what you did wrong with your, with your crazy, you know, devil-turned children, right? You know you have to discipline. You know you have to have justice because you have love for them. The two go hand in hand. So, so this is the question that this should have brought and that you should have texted me or you should have asked me if you were really listening to today's message, which oh, I'm just, I'm being facetious with you today. But, but th the question then becomes, hold on a second here, pastor. Isn't the God of the Old Testament a whole lot meaner and a whole lot nastier and a whole lot more violent, and a whole lot more justice, justice, justice than Jesus is God? Like, aren't there two different gods? Let's be honest. Like, we, we like this love thing a whole lot. What we don't like is, you know, okay, let's wipe out the whole world with a flood. 
Yes. You know, like, isn't there a difference there? Like, isn't there two different gods? Isn't the God of Jesus actually different than the God of the Old Testament? We played a, a quote from Richard Dawkins uh, in, the, in the, first, um, the first message, and it's from a movie uh, where he's reading it out of his book, The God Delusion. And in his book, he says, he's very careful with his words. He says, the God of the Old Testament is, and he has a litany of, I mean, it's, it's actually quite brilliantly written. I mean, he just berates uh, God. I mean, the things that he says, the most ruthless character in all fiction, you know, uh, a homicidal maniac, uh, this and that. I mean, he just goes on and on and on. It's brilliantly written, okay? He says, the God of the Old Testament. I would have liked to have heard what he said about the God of the New Testament because he would say the same thing. He said, no, 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 no. This is one of the many contradictions in the Bible. You've got Jesus talking about this God of love and you've got this God of hate in the Old Testament. Okay, so let me just answer this for you and then we'll finish today. People who have that rationale and who look, at, who, who look at the Bible that way have not read the Bible in full. There is no way that you can read the Bible in full. I mean, every book of the Bible, every last one of those 66 pesky books. Like you, There's no way that you can read the Bible and have that conclusion. There's no way. Let me give you, let me give you just some statistics, okay? There are so many more passages about the love of God in the Old Testament than there are in the New Testament. So many more. The reason is that the Old Testament's a bigger collection of literature. It's larger. You have so many more references to the love of God in the Old Testament than the New Testament. So many more. Let me give you just a few of them just to sample. Uh, Psalms, the Psalms are loaded with these. Psalm 103, verse 8, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love, in love. What? That's in the Old Testament. It's in the Old Testament. Psalm 136 says the phrase, his love endures forever 26 times in one Psalm talks about something that God does, and it's like a song that people were supposed to sing. His love endures forever. His love endures forever. His love endures forever. 26 times they would sing this as they would recite this song. And that's, that's, that's the Old Testament. Remember the story of Jonah? And, and we covered this last year also. Remember the, the Jonah and the whale? And by the way, uh, you know, whether or not you can prove Jonah and the, and the whale, you know, that doesn't, if you, if you can prove it, great. But remember what we talked about last week? You, it's Jesus and the resurrection, right? That's where you start. Even if you can prove Jonah and the whale, but you don't believe in Jesus, you, you, you've got to get to the Jesus part. So in the story of, of Jonah, when Jonah is eventually, you know, he survives the, the, the fish incident. He's coughed up onto dry land. He ends up going to the Ninevites. He ends up preaching to the Ninevites. And the Ninevites repent. They actually repent. This wicked, ungodly nation, violent nation, uh, filled with war and destruction and all this stuff. They actually repent. And Jonah gets very, very angry at this. He's very, very angry with God. And the book ends with God having a conversation with Jonah. 
And um, it, it, this, is, this is Jonah's, Jonah's conclusion. He said, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That, that is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. Remember, he goes, he runs from the call of God. He goes like 5,000 miles away, away from, from Nineveh. And he's like, I'm not going anywhere near there. And he says, this is what I thought all along. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. I knew it. If I preached to those people, those people would repent because I know that you love those people and I hate those people. Those people did terrible things to my people and you asked me to go and preach to those people. You asked me to go and prophesy to those people who likely murdered some of his own family. We don't know for sure. You've asked me to do that and this is why I ran because I knew because you're a God of love, that those Ninevites, those nasty, violent, murderous Ninevites, even them, you even love those people. Wow, that's in, the, that's in the Old Testament, okay? Jeremiah 31, verse 3, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. Does th that's in the Old Testament. And that's just a small little sampling. There's so many more passages about the love of God in the Old Testament than the New Testament because it's a bigger book. It's a bigger collection of literature. And on the other hand, there are more passages about the justice and the wrath and the violence of God in the New Testament than there are in the Old Testament. You say that's impossible. Excuse me, have you ever read the book of Revelation? You ever read that book? That's some violent book. That's <laughs> really violent. That's like the wrath of God on steroids, okay, is the book of Revelation. We did a whole series on it in this church. There are many more passages about the justice and the wrath and the punishment of God in the New Testament than there are in the Old Testament. Let me give you a sampling. We love John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Have we read John 3.36? Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. That's the New Testament. That's right after the passage that says, for God so loved the world. But we don't, we don't acknowledge that too often. Uh, Romans chapter 1, which probably in the near future will become illegal to read in public. I, I foresee a time when, when churches will be faced with the Romans 1 problem because Romans 1 has things that, wow, there's some very, very harsh passages in the book of Romans chapter 1. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth. The wrath of God is being revealed strong it's in the new it's a new testament romans 2 because of your stubbornness and your unrepenting heart you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of god's wrath wow new testament when his righteous judgment will be revealed god will repay each person according to what they have done my goodness so this this view that wow the the old testament god he's he's not i don't want that god i want the new testament god are you sure 
because he's a God of love, but he's also a God of justice. And in fact, the whole Bible teaches that. From cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, you read them all, and you will see a picture of this God that Jesus described. He didn't make God different. He didn't change God. He fully and even more fully revealed who God is and ultimately declared himself to be God. But the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are exactly the same. Spirit, Father, love, justice. This is who God is amongst many, many other things. So uh, on Good Friday, we're going to talk about that question, uh, the question of justice, because we have an enormous problem on our hands when we think about who God is. We talked about this in, in Hope in the Dark, that series, but we're going to look at it in a different way. If God can and God is good, then why doesn't God do such and such. Why is he apparently very, very unjust? Why does he allow wicked people to prosper, apparently? Why does he not do anything, apparently, about all of the evil and all of the problems that we see in this world? That is a huge, huge question, and that is an enormous problem, which I think you'll see on Friday night is solved by Good Friday is solved by what Jesus did on the cross and the implications of that. So we'll look at Good Friday from that, that perspective uh, on Friday night over at uh, Lustudio. Okay, so as